Okay, so um, if you'd like to turn with me in your own gadget or your Bible to 1 Samuel 17, chapter 17, verse 1. I'm going to just read it with you guys here, all right, so I can keep pace. So, now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. <laughs> he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves. A bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. So the context here, you can almost see it playing out in your mind. We have a lot of movies, those sandal epics. We have a lot of movies like Troy. You can see armies pulled up. You can see nervousness of men. You can feel the anticipation in the air. You have the Philistines on one side, and now they've come from the coast, and they're smarting because they've suffered a series of defeats, and they're thirsting for vengeance, and they're looking for an easy target, and they feel like Israel's going to be that target for them. Then you have the valley, and on the other side you have the Israelites. And this is a people that they're kind of facing a bit of a hard time themselves. Saul is their king, but they're not in possession of Jerusalem. And for anyone that knows much about Jerusalem, this is a city of deep significance to them. It carries basically like their identity, a lot of it, other than God. If it's not in God, like it's really focused on Jerusalem. It's the seat of worship. It's the seat of their rule, and they don't actually own it. So the Israelites are here, and they kind of look like a little bit of easy pickings for the Philistines. The other advantage that the Philistines have over the Israelites is superior technology. They've learned how to better make better weapons. Their processes of blacksmithing are just vastly superior to what Israel can do. And so now you have this soldier from the Philistines pull himself off from the main body of the army and start to walk down into the valley. And as he's coming down into the valley, the Israelites are kind of getting nervous and they're looking at each other like, is he getting any smaller? <laughs> like, he's, so he gets down to the valley and he's looking them in the eye and he's saying, you know what? Come out and fight me. He's calling them out. He's basically chastising them. He's belittling them. And they're so sorely afraid, they don't even know what to do. The interesting thing to notice about this, and sometimes the timelines and how we're presented with Samuel can become a little bit messed up, 
But in a few chapters before this, there's a man named Jonathan. This is the son of Saul. And he's no slouch. He has faith and he has bravery. And it's recorded in scripture that he and his shield bearer are out and they see a bunch of Philistines, the same people group that they're facing here today, up on a hill. And Jonathan says to his shield bearer, you know what? If they call us out, if they call us to come up and fight, that means God's giving them to us, into our hand. And the shield bearer is kind of like, I, I back your play. <laughs> and they get called out. And Jonathan, they charge the hill and they take those Philistines out. So it's not like Israelite doesn't, is the Israelites, they don't have any brave men. They're brave men. And there's nothing in scripture that tells us that Jonathan wasn't there that day. But there's nothing that tells us that he wasn't. And as the son of Saul, it can be rightly expected that Jonathan was probably in attendance there somewhere. But as Saul comes out and he's calling the Israelites out over these 40 days, nobody answers it. Jonathan isn't willing to go down and answer it. Saul, who scripture also tells us, stands like head and shoulders above the average man and might rightly expect it to go meet a giant like that. Saul's not willing to go and do it. I want to I want to ask you guys a question. 40 days and 40 nights. That does it stand out to you? Does it sound familiar? Does anybody give me some other ideas from scripture where we saw 40 days, 40 nights? Noah, the flood, yes. Rain 40 days, 40 nights. Jesus' temptation, 40 days in the wilderness. Moses, yeah, at least three times he went back up to Sinai for 40 days praying for the Israelites. They needed a lot of prayer, and so do we. Um, anything else? Yeah, wandering in the desert for 40 days. And then also when they went to spy out the land, right? When they, came, when they went to spy out the land, they were spying for 40 days, and then most of the spies came back and said, there's giants, we can't do it. And so part of the, basically, the punishment for Israel then was that for every day that you took spying out the land, you're going to wander the desert. So 40 years also represents the time it takes for one generation to pass away and another one to start. So what we see is, and, and then at the uh, after the resurrection of Christ in the New Testament, Jesus was with his disciples for 40 days, teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God before he ascended into heaven. So 40 days is very, very significant. It represents a time of transition. It represents a time of challenge, certainly. A night. But what we know about night is that there's joy in the morning. And so what we see here, 40 days is not insignificant. This is, Saul has already been weighed and found wanting. David has already been anointed. This 40 days is like the signal, the transfer, the rollover from the end of Saul to the beginning of David. This would mark basically the first heroic moment for David on his road towards the throne. It's almost like the meeting between David and Goliath was set. Let me paint a picture for you a little bit more about this Goliath guy. So it says in scripture he was over nine feet tall. Well, we know he, he was approximately nine foot nine inches. Like, Don, how tall are you? Just for scale. Six four. So another three and a half feet on top of Don. All right? That's a massive guy. 
He's got armor that starts at his shoulders and goes down to at least his knees, and it was scale armor. So it would have been like a jerkin, and he would have looked impenetrable, like a fish. He had bronze greaves that went from his knee down to his toes, so now you can't see anything. On his head, it said his bronze helmet, like it's like a headband, and then you know the Native American feathers that kind of cascade back from the headband? It would have looked something like that, with, with the same material as his jerkin, covering all of his head so that his whole head was protected. And then it's talking about the javelin that he had. It would have been more like something like a two by six with what 15 pounds of iron on the top of it. So this guy was basically a ballista's like ancient artillery where it's like this massive crossbow. This guy was his own ballista. He was walking around and what they would do in combat, the shield bearer would go ahead of him and he'd have his javelins and before closing to melee range, they'd be chucking these things at each other to whittle away numbers and get them the numbers down before closing to hand-to-hand combat. So this guy's got the best technology that the Philistines have to offer, probably the best equipment in the military that they have. He He's their champion. He's basically a mobile weapons platform. This guy represents to the Israelites death, essentially. And he's down there and he's the guy that's calling them out. All right. So just, I want to picture, I want you to picture that. And as we, as we start to transition here, you're like, that's great. That's a good description. What does it mean? There's this guy. He's this indomitable force, impossible for them. When they look at this guy, there's like, there's no way I can fight that guy. He's going to, first of all, he's going to skewer me with his javelin before I even get close to him. And if I do, then, I mean, the sword is the size of me. What am I supposed to do against these impossible odds? In this story, Goliath, to us, it represents sin. And sin is kind of an old word, and I'm going to just break it down for you a little bit. When I have friends, and if I get into a conversation about the gospel, and you know, the sin is such, sin is such an important topic when it comes to the gospel. I heard over Christmas, somebody was presenting, you know, the gospel of Christ, and he was talking about how God loves you and wants and desires relationship with you. But you know, that was all I really, I heard the guy say. And, if I'm honest with you, that's not the gospel, all right? Because there are a lot of broken and uh, thirsting people in the world that desire the love of God, but they also have no idea of their need. They don't understand the work that God did to reestablish the connection to them. So in the beginning, God created this perfect world where there was relationship. And nobody had ill will. There was no anxiety. There was no basically assuming the worst or what's that person saying about me. There was perfect relationship between man and God and man and man. But that didn't last long, as we know. And so basically, when we talk about sin, people say, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm good. Well, what do you mean by that? What's your standard, basically? Well, I don't murder. I I don't kill. I don't lie much. I usually don't steal unless it's a really good opportunity and I know for sure I'm not going to get caught, right? This is kind of what they'll, and then and nobody even thinks about like just even the idea of broken relationships. How many broken relationships can we see in the world today? I mean, even within our own families, you know, the black sheep or just anxiety, the amount of depression, suicide. So sin is a very real force in our world today, and it's something that we have to contend with. And so in this story, 
Goliath for us represents sin. It's like this impossible thing that we have to deal with. And you know what David's biggest problem with Goliath was when he showed up? I'm going to skip a little bit of the story. When we read, he's kind of gone through that. I'd encourage you to read chapter 17 for yourself. It's pretty short. When David shows up and he hears Goliath talking, the biggest problem that David has with Goliath is that he's like, this guy's mocking the armies of the living God. This guy is dishonoring God. He didn't even read in the insults from Goliath, an insult to himself. He wasn't, his national pride wasn't really offended. He was mostly offended by Goliath's insult against God. That's who David was representing there. That's who he got his ire up about. Many of us face a lot of giants today. I think that there might be a few of us that even kind of came into the new year and as like a new year resolution, I was talking to someone and they're like, we don't, I don't make resolutions. I said, yeah, neither do I. Not really. But for those of you that do, you know, maybe, maybe it was that idea of that, that one sin in your life that kind of seems to claw and hold on to you. Maybe a resolution for you this year was, I'm going to stomp out that stronghold in my life. I don't want it to have power over me, at me anymore. And you can think about it right now. You can see it head and shoulders above everything else in your life, mocking and deriding you, calling you out, making you question your identity as a child of God, making you question your relationship with him, just stirring up doubt and confusion. And you're not sure how to approach it. It kind of, it just consistently knocks you off balance. It steals your joy. It steals your peace. I have good news coming for you, but just wait. So we got our own issues. And then you look at the world, talking about more evidence of sin. Wars and rumors of wars. Anyone hear about what's going on in Iran? You know, World War III looming. You have pestilence and disease, AIDS epidemics. You have famine, countries being just major food shortages, massive issues. You have inflation and economic ruin. You're like, that's kind of funny. It doesn't seem like it fits. But the scripture talks about a piece of bread costing a bag of gold, right? That, that, that's, that'll kill you as quick as anything. There are natural disasters. It's like the world itself is groaning under the weight of sin, right? You have hurricanes, typhoons. You have erupting volcanoes. Like just every time you look, there's a new hurricane. There's flooding. There's fires. And this is wiping things out. And, and people are, are looking for the reason behind this. You know, Jesus, he foretold it, and he said it would be a sign of the time. You have men and women, because we're all made for worship, right? We're all made for worship and glorifying something. And if Jesus Christ is not the Lord of our life, we go looking for something else. And you can see that evidenced in the pursuit of all kinds of ideologies, in empty philosophies, people looking for a reason to live, people looking for a reason to get up in the morning. And in a lot of cases, anything will do as long as it dethrones Christ. As long as Jesus isn't in charge, I'm good with it. That looks good to me. Sign me up. Our allegiance to Christ is constantly being tested in the world today. You know, the philosophies that I talked about in Corinthians, it actually calls those empty philosophies like the philosophies of demons. And you're like, Adam, do you believe in demons? I, I 100% do. 
It says we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, right? I still have good news, but hold on. (laughs) I'm going to go through a few more things. Abortion. Injustice. Corruption. Oppression. Rebellion. All these things point to the prince of the air. The work of his demons at work in our societies is sexual sin, substance abuse, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, suicide are rampant and getting worse. Talking about suicide and uh, like not having any meaning or any reason to live. You know, suicide, depression, it's, it's stealing and killing more, the joy of more young people. Actually, it doesn't even, it's not, it's not just young people. It's every age demographic and bracket that are affected by this. Rage and hatred leading to violence is so prevalent in our society at every level of human relationship and interaction. You want to go big in wars and rumors of wars. You want to go small, murders, rapes. It's like it, it actually in, in big city centers, they don't even try and report on all the different things happening anymore. It's kind of like they just have a little section in the newspaper. You can kind of read through it, the numbers. That's right next to sports. When it comes to sexual sin, I, I was like, do I talk about this? I'm like, a little bit. I, I have to. It talk, like our identity and where we get our identity from. Nowadays, uh, we're getting so far removed from the word and from a knowledge of Christ that identity is starting to be, basically, it can become wrapped up in your sexual preference. And your sexual preference becomes like the paradigm through which you see and view the world. And it just, it completely shrinks their world in on themselves. And it makes, it sets up division. They're like, those that are okay with this and view it, you know, you're progressive and you get that you can do the handshake and do the nod, then that's fine. And if you don't agree with it, well, then you're just a backward bigot. And so society is extremely divided. There's d- deep, deep-rooted divisions. And this is seen, it plays out in politics, it's being played out in our societies, it's being played out in our families. One of the biggest things that I see from all this is that people do not recognize sin. You know, before, because of the way things are going, the the benchmark, the the uh, boundary has been so far removed that, you know, you can't, you can't talk, and, how do you talk and preach about Christian chastity and and, you know, a man and a woman having sex before marriage, that's not even a conversation anymore. There's all these other things going on. And this is just symptomatic of people don't recognize sin. People don't, we don't believe in giants anymore. Are you ready for some good news yet? <laughs> okay. All right. All of these are not issues that we can solve ourselves. These aren't things that we can tackle and just take care of in our own strength, with our own intellect. We can't throw money at it. We can't fund research. We're not going to fix it ourselves. There's no way. The only hope of us, our community here in Drumheller, of the world, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer to sin. He is the solution to sin. God when he gave Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for me and for you and for the world, he knew what he was doing. He said, man and woman, we, you can't work your way into relationship with me. There's no way that uh, what you do, there's no, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of prayer or uh, 
good works in the community that is going to make you worthy to come in and enter into relationship with me. God, he knew that, and he made a way. He made a way for you, he made a way for me, and he made a way for the town of Drumheller, for Canada and for the world. David stated when he goes out to see Goliath, it's not by sword or the spear that Jesus saves, that God saves, which is kind of reflective of what God said himself. He said, not by strength nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Do you believe that this morning? Okay, so now in the story, where do we fit in? I mean, you know, the Israelites, the army of the Israelites, that's us. And that may kind of come as a surprise to some of you today. You're like, wait a minute. Usually when I hear about that, you know, we're David and, you know, we're slaying the giant. I'm, I'm not saying that that interpretation is wrong. I like that interpretation. It has its place. But today I want to approach it from a bit of a different angle. Are you willing to come with me today on that? All right. And, and we can talk about it later. I love coffee. So just so you know, it was, I, I was watching different mashups and like greatest sermons ever. It was a couple years ago. It's just, just from my own clarity. It's like, it wasn't an idea that I just came up with. Another preacher had said it and I had seen just like a 30 second clip of it and I couldn't even find it again today to properly reference it for you, but I'd seen it. And when I saw it, I was kind of like, wow, I've never heard that before, but there's something about about how he presented it and what he said in that like 30 seconds, as I said, that really resonated with me. And to be honest, it was kind of like a weight came off my shoulders too. I was like, I, I really like that interpretation. And if I ever get the chance to preach on David and Goliath, I'm going to look at this closer. And so here we are today. <laughs> All right, so First Samuel 17, verses 17 to 24. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain, and does anyone know how to say that? Ephah's fine, okay. And these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit, bribery. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. So we're the Israelites. We're the beleaguered nation that's like, we're, we're there, we're present, we formed up, we're, we're ready for battle. But uh, when faced with this imposing monstrosity of death, we're a little bit afraid we don't know how to approach it. We look at our own weapons and our own gear, and we're not really professional soldiers. We're just here to fight because our king said, yo, we got a fight to go to. And, you know, you put aside your flocks. You put, you, you know, most of us are actually farmers and stuff. It's not really our trade, as it were, but we're there. And when we see this guy, we're like, what did I sign up for? 
Goliath, again, David's big problem with Goliath was that Goliath wasn't even acknowledging God. When he called them out, he said, Well, aren't I a Philistine? Aren't you servants of Saul? Aren't you the army of Israel? He didn't even acknowledge Israel's God. He was focused all on the material. He was basically larger than life in the face of the Israels and making them, he was pulling their vision from God. He was making them forget about the promises that God had put on the Israelites' life. You know, as I said, they weren't in possession of Jerusalem at this time, but you know they had the promises from God. They knew that they were supposed to be in that land. They knew that they were supposed to thrive. They knew that they were supposed to prosper. But then faced with this enemy, all that kind of flew out the window. They were forced to reckon with the facts here and now and to not let God be a factor in that. Does that sound kind of familiar with some of the philosophies that come out or maybe just some of the circumstances that we face in our own lives? I think as a soldier, there's a couple issues that we can run into. And it's one that I, I'm going to admit I face myself. It's like, as a good soldier of Christ, you know that when you become a child of God, you're also enlisted, right? You become a, a soldier in the army of the Lord. And that means that there's a battle. And that means there are casualties and it hurts and it might not be comfortable sometimes. But, you know, I think that if, if I'm honest, especially as a Canadian young man, just, you know, speaking for myself and I think a lot of young Canadians, we can get our eyes off the battle and we can start looking around at like what we're supposed to be doing here. You know, I'm just supposed to be comfortable. I'm entitled to my security. I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to that. And, you know, it doesn't take long. My eyes are off the battle and my heart can go out of the fight because I'm not even focused on it. So that, that can be a problem that some of those young soldiers had. Wait a minute, I got my whole life to live. I never even met Saul. Have you met Jesus? Do you know who you're fighting for? Spend time with him? And then, and then there's the older soldiers. And I'm talking to myself here for both of these. And you're like, well, you just said young and old. I'm like, well, I'm 34, so I can kind of fit in a couple categories, all right? But then the older soldiers, they're like, you know what, maybe they're like, I've seen God do good work. I'm not really worried about the Goliath guy, but I'm just so full of judgment and criticism. That I look at the world, I'm like, well, you're all, you know, you, you're so tired of feel, not just feeling, but being told blatantly, we don't care about what you think. We don't care about what you feel. We don't care what you know. You're not wanted. You have nothing to add to society. And so even as uh, we retreat into our splendid isolation, we're not invited by society out into the conversation anyway. And so bitterness can grow up in the heart and be like, well, you know what? <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> well, just wait. Just wait. And, and that's, uh, that's an attitude of bitterness. You know, I, I, never, I never really understood Job before until I was coming to this place where I'm like, no, I don't care. You know? And it's like, Oh my, if I identify with Job, that's a problem, right? I, I, I said before, when I was young, I loved to hear the Bible stories about the Bible characters, and I loved to see myself in their shoes and as them, and I would, uh, yeah, I'm going to be Elijah, I'm going to have so much faith, I'm going to call fire from the sky, and, and I'd always identify with these great Bible characters up to the point of their failure. 
when they failed or when they kind of went off track a little bit, when they had some doubt, I was just kind of disappointed in them as well. I'm like, I had the whole story though, right? I'm like, well, if you just held on a little longer, I mean, it turned out well, but you could have had this and that and this could have been different and like, uh, you know, this, you know, you do know what I'm saying? I identified with them up to the point of their failure. Now it's kind of like, thank you, God, for showing the full story. Because that failure makes them imminently more relatable. It makes them more authentic, makes it plausible, real. And you know what? The story is not about them. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God. It's all about his saving action. It's all about him making the way back into relationship with him. It's not about the glory of David. It's not about the glory of Elijah or Moses. It's all about God. So faced with Goliath, here we are, we're the Israelite army. (laughs) Uh, I'd rather be looking after my sheep. I have this guy calling me out, making me feel ashamed, making me keenly aware of my own inadequacy. And there's a realization that comes that it's like, I need rescue. We need rescue here in this situation. We talk about people that, though, so we talked about people that are just pursuing comfort, people that maybe just grow jaded, critical cynicism, and maybe at some point, varying degrees, we can all kind of feel that at different points in our life. Um, but then there's, there's also the people that when they, when faced with that extreme doubt and with faced with their own feeling of failure, and when they continue to try to do it in their own strength, two things can happen. People either completely burn out as a result, just spinning their wheels, trying to make things work, trying to um, demolish the sin in their life, demolish the strongholds. The other thing that can happen is you just drift into unbelief. You're like, that's impossible, so I don't believe. And what happens here is it's very interesting. If you find that in your own, in your own measure you're failing and you can't match up to this standard that's supposed to be there, the moment you choose not to believe is kind of like a warm blanket and say, if I don't believe in sin, actually, it doesn't actually have any bearing on my life. It doesn't mean anything. And that's exactly where they go off track and start pursuing and replacing Christ in their lives with different philosophies and different ideologies that can kind of maintain that warm blanket without the person themselves facing that internal dilemma. It, it basically calms the storm in their life when they've come to that point where they're, they don't know what they're doing. They had a wrong understanding of Christianity, felt too hard. And as, as they struggle and realize, like, I'm not meeting up to this great religion, so it must just not be for me. To calm that voice, to quiet it, that's when they eject it. That's when they stop believing in sin. They stop believing in giants. If the giant's not there and this fight's not happening, it doesn't matter. Right? The good news, the best news, the reason that we're here today is because it's not on your strength. It's not on my strength. It's not how much good works we do. But it is all, 100%, Jesus Christ comes in and flattens those strongholds. What I was talking about today is the title of this sermon is Our Position in Christ. 
And when we know who we are in Christ, when we're the child of God, and we have the understanding that there was no way for ourselves to make it back into relationship with God, but that Jesus had to make the way, that is where we can start to understand our position is to stand firm. And in the end, just to stand. So I'm going to read through um, Samuel 17, 45 to 53. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. It doesn't look like he was interested in Philistine slaves either. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the line, the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sherem road to Gath and Akron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. Drawing to the close. So in David's opening address, he totally refutes what Goliath had been saying. He'd kind of lulled them with this lie, you know, like this, everything that is going on now is about the here and now. You've got to face me. No mention of God. David comes in, completely shatters that. He brings the Israelites back to themselves, back to the knowledge of the identity of who they are and who they serve and whose battle it is anyway. In the analogy this morning, we are the Israelites. And David represents Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and Messiah. Jesus sent by his Father to come and rescue us, the good shepherd whose rod and staff grants us all comfort the one who leaves the flocks behind to save the one that was lost, the one that destroys and dismantles the roaring lion that goes around looking for who it can kill, maim, and destroy. Do we fight? In the battle there, do we fight? We, we do, kind of, but here's what happened. Before we take the first step to charge, the battle was already won. The Philistines were already had enough of it. They had no time for that. They were getting out. So do you fight? Yes, we're asked to fight. Do we have to walk out our faith with fear and trembling? Do we have to work it out? We do. But I just want to remind you today, there, there might be something that you've been holding on to. It's something I think that happens with Christians, especially as we get older and more mature in the faith. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We know that there's nothing we can do to earn it. But there's something about it. It's like, no, I still have to pay rent, though. I still have to pull up my boots and do my fair share of the lifting here. I just want to remind you that Jesus did it all. When he did it, he said, it is finished. 
Some of you have been carrying heavy burdens today. Some of you have been carrying it, and like you said, in the new year, you're like, this is my year, I'm going to get rid of that sin. I just want to point out to you, and I hope it's an encouragement to you, there's no way you're going to do it. Because Jesus Christ has to do it. You're like, what does that mean? Well, you know, next time I get to speak here, we'll talk about uh, how to work out our faith. And what does it mean to rest in him? And what does it mean to allow him to win that battle, to carry us, so that as soon as we take that first step, the battle has already been won. We're just rooting the enemy. Because if you resist the devil, he will flee. Your identity is in Christ. Christ the Messiah, that whole term could only come because of David. The Israel, like in their idea of who this perfect and righteous king could be, it started with the root of David. And Jesus is a line, is a king in the line of David. That is my encouragement to you today. As you go there and, and you have a, a new year, um, let, let the Holy Spirit come and impress on you just what he's working in your life. You know, you, we all surrender to something. You surrender to philosophies and ideologies that dethrone Christ, or we can turn around and surrender to Christ. Either way, you surrender. I think that maybe the other thing that is, is hard in the world today, and I didn't read it there, but when David was asking around, like, what's going on with this Goliath dude? What's he asking? His brother, his older brother, who was there and had not volunteered to fight Goliath over the 40 days, he got really upset at David. He's like, what are you doing here? You just, you just wanted to sneak away so you could see a battle and you have a wicked heart. You know, I think sometimes when faced with the gospel message of, you know, there's nothing you can actually do, there's no way you can earn it, there, there can be an element of pride in us that says, I don't accept that. You can't do something that I can't. I, yeah, I haven't faced Goliath, but how dare you presume to do it for me? Would you, would you step down? Would you let Jesus come in and just strike Goliath dead? 